Father in heaven, we praise you. We thank you for this time that you have given us. Father, we pray that we will see your glory this morning and that you will open our hearts and minds to do that. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. Today is our last class. We are looking at the glory of God alone. Um, before we um, continue on, today is our last class. So if you haven't signed for the newsletter, I'm going to pass this along. Please sign up for the newsletter. You will receive um, resources or links to resources that I have used throughout this class. And there's so much to dig into. And again, what we have done in this class is just scratching the surface of the surface. So um, sign up for the newsletter. I will send uh, an email with the links. OK, all right. So glory of God alone. I think it um, kind of feels misplaced that we have to talk about God's glory when it comes to the Reformation, because it's, it's weird. It doesn't fit in, typically, with the other solas. We spoke about scripture alone, and faith alone, and grace alone, and Christ alone, and all of that has to do with salvation. And the first class, we looked at how the Reformation came about, like what was the reason, who started it, why, where, when, all of those things. But the question that we have to ask is, why was the glory of God an issue during the Reformation? Anybody? Why was the glory of God an issue during the Reformation? Was it because church was made such a big deal of and not focused on God? Okay, yes. And uh, that is a good answer, and we will see how that fits in. But anybody else? Yes. Annie. Um, my only other thought was, like, uh, I know during the Reformation, the king often had used the church and that for his own glory instead of God's glory, like emphasizing the, the anointing of the, the monarch rather than focusing on the glory of God. Yeah, so the king had elevated himself and emphasizing on the monarchy other than the glory of God. Yes, that's a good point. Um, that had happened when uh, it was called the Holy Roman Emperor. <laughs> so that was the name, sorry, Ro Holy Roman Empire. That was the name of the kingdom and the church and everything. And yes, there was a lot of uh, commingling between politics and religion. And the church had a say in politics, which I think I told you when we spoke about sacraments, that the church would just not administer sacraments because they wanted the king to do something, right? So they had a lot of um, hand in the politics. And same thing with the king influencing the church. So yeah, there were a lot of such things happening. Um, one thing that you have to uh, remember, and we will move on, is that the Catholic Church, or the Church at that time, they did not renounce God's glory. They never said, no, God is not to be glorified. As we have seen with every other sola, right? There was no uh, denial of grace. They didn't say, we don't need grace. They didn't say, we don't need faith. They didn't say, we don't need Christ. But Christ 
faith, grace, they were not sufficient. And in the same way, when you look at God's glory, they did not deny God's glory. But what they had done is that they had elevated other things and other persons higher or, um, higher or even up to the same level as God and the work that God alone does. Okay, so that was what was happening. And some of the things that they had elevated were uh, Mary and the saints. And this is where you get the treasury of the merits, right? Um, you get the treasury of the merits where the church has authority to disperse those merits that are gained from the saints and Mary to whomever the church wishes. So they had done that. Uh, so yes, they had elevated the Mary and the saints, the work that they had done, their merit, up to the level of Christ's righteousness. They had also elevated the church because the Pope and the councils had said, you cannot be saved unless you're part of the church, unless you're part of the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church. There is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. And the role of church was so important that you had to listen and obey and follow the church. The church also came up with the commandments of the church alongside the Ten Commandments, and those were needed to be followed for salvation. And then you had sacraments. We spoke about sacraments when we looked at faith alone, where God's grace is poured into us through the sacraments, right? And that is the work that we do. And through the sacraments, is how we become righteous. That's the works that we do, and because of that, we, uh, get, God, we get God's grace infused into us through the sacraments. So the sacraments were elevated also. The priests, the priests were, uh, are still today, they're called Alto Christus, another Christ, right? So the priests were elevated, and their office was elevated and made almost equal to Christ because they are offering the sacrifice in every mass. And they were like the high priest in the Old Testament, but the Bible, uh, Hebrew says we have one high priest and he has finished his work and now he's seated because the work is done. And obviously at the end of it, you're, you're uh, sort of elevating your own works, your own self. Because remember when we spoke about Christ alone, it was not just Christ's righteousness that is needed, but also your righteousness. Your righteousness plus Christ's righteousness is what gets you acceptable or justified before God. You have to be made righteous, and the way you do it is through your own works. So there were a lot of things that were elevated, and this is what was happening. Um, the other aspect that was also important is that worship was misplaced. And um, we can think about how today the Catholics, uh, when we talk about the saints, they say, no, 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 we don't worship the saints, but we just venerate them. And when it came to the saints, the Catholic Church had said, no, we don't offer them latria, which is um, worship, and instead we offer them dulia, which is service. Okay, so latria, that's where you get idolatry from, idol plus latria would be idolatry. Okay, so um, they said, no, we don't do Latria. Latria is only to God, the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit. We don't offer Latria to anybody. Instead, we offer Dulia, which is service to the saints. But when it comes to Mary, we do hyper-Dulia, right? 
We do hyperdulia when it comes to Mary because she's the mother of God and she is above the saints. Uh, so we offer her hyperdulia. And most of us have seen what sort of dulia or hyperdulia. If you've been in a Catholic church, if you've been among Catholics, you would have seen that there is, in practice, there is actually no difference between the dulia and the latria. Like what they do is sometimes it'd be like, whoa, you're bowing down, you're genuflecting, you're kissing, you're doing all those things to the idols or the statues. And yes, the understanding is that you're not offering worship, but it looks to me that you are offering worship. So there was a lot of confusion between who is to be worshipped, and as I said, worship itself was misplaced. So when it came to the Reformation, the Reformers saw this and they're like, um, no, this is not how it is supposed to be. First of all, um, we cannot be saved by anything other than Christ alone, and through faith in Him alone, and by grace alone. So that's the only way we can save. And all the other things that you have elevated, they really don't help in salvation. Yes, they may be examples for us and uh, things for our sanctification, but those are not things for our justification. So that was one of the cries during the Reformation. So they wanted to not um, elevate all of these things up to the same level as God's glory. And then when it came to worship, it's like, no, only God is to be worshipped, right? I, I think all of us uh, will agree, and they wanted to call the church, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, to come to worship God alone and not humans in the form of saints and Mary. So this is why the glory of God became an important issue during the Reformation. Um, again, as I mentioned, the church, the Catholic Church at that time, they did not renounce God's glory, but they had elevated other things. And even today, you will find the same thing. Even today, when you go, all of these things are still there. There, there was Reformation more than 500 years ago, and since then, uh, there was the Counter-Reformation in the Roman Catholic Church, which is what the Council of Trent is, and they didn't, <laughs> they didn't change anything. They just sometimes uh, double down on the things that they were doing. Right? And then you had the First Vatican Council in the 1800s, and then the Second Vatican Council in the 1950s, and all of those, nothing has changed. Right? So all of these still remain. And when you go to a Catholic church now or see a Catholic uh, in worship, you will see that they do the exact same thing to the saints and Mary that they do to uh, Jesus and God. In fact, they will be more um, spending more time praying to the saints and Mary than they do praying to God and Jesus. Okay, so um, that's still in practice. Rick? I think I, I would make the claim that prayer is not only worship, that prayer is a high form of worship. And if that's the case, which I think it is, how can they pray to Mary or anybody but God and claim that they're not worshiping? Do they have a comeback for that? Because prayer is worship. Yeah. So the way they would um, justify praying to the saints is just like how I could ask you to pray for me. It's like, hey, I'm going through a tough time. Can you please pray for me? So you're asking another human being to pray. So I'm doing the same thing. I'm asking the saints to pray for me. I'm asking Mary to pray for me. And in fact, it is a little bit advantageous to me because they are closer to Jesus and Jesus is too busy taking care of other things and somebody needs to uh, advocate for me to Jesus. And 
uh, when I was growing up as a Catholic, this was a very common phrase, to Jesus through Mary. And that still happens today. So, yes, that's how it works. It's just like I'm asking you to pray for me to God. So it's the same rationale that they will use. Okay. So, yeah, so that's the Holy Mary, that's the Hail Mary prayer, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us us, now and at the hour of our death. That leads to so much more. Uh, because I think when you're dying, you would want to pray to Christ more than <laughs> prayer. Uh, Dan, did you also have your hand up? Um, so I guess my question is, is that, would you consider that to be like witchcraft because you're praying to dead people to pray for you? If you take it to the extreme, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you keep following it logically, yes, you will end up in the Deuteronomy 18 realm there where God says do not call on dead people so uh, but they will say no they're not dead they're living because they're with God anyway never mind um, okay I am going to cause feedback if I get closer to the speaker that's why yeah okay I'm gonna try um, all right so this is what the issue was during the Reformation and the reformers, they wanted to emphasize the glory of God in the sense that God alone is to be worshipped, God alone saves, and it is uh, God alone who is involved in the work of salvation. And we looked at this when we spoke about grace alone. We looked at monergism versus synergism, right? So monergism is where there is one person acting in salvation. Mono is one, ergo is work, uh, so one person acting. Synergism is sin is with or um, is with and ergo is work. So two people working with each other, right? So two or more people working with each other. That is synergism. And when we looked at grace alone, we said it's only by God's grace. God is the only one who initiates, uh, accomplishes, and applies salvation. And all that we do are recipients of the salvation. So there is monergism, and then there's synergism, where we said, no, we have to cooperate with God. We have our part. We have to do our part. And unless we do our part, we, God cannot accomplish his salvation. So God can try all he wants, but unless we do what we are supposed to do, salvation cannot be accomplished. That is synergism, and that is where the conversation, the, the contention was also during the Reformation to say, no, God alone is the one who gets glory in salvation. No man can claim. And you can look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. For we have been saved by grace through faith. It is not our own works so that anyone may boast. Okay, so God gets the glory in salvation and God gets the glory also in worship. And we'll look at a few more things as we wrap up the class. But I want to look today at the glory of God. Again, this is such a huge topic to talk about the glory of God. And I have uh, 13 minutes, but we will try to look at how God has done all things in history for his glory. Okay, God, from the beginning till the end, he does all things for his glory. And um, you could have uh, 
You could look at any of those major milestones in time. Let's start with creation. God created for his glory. In Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And Colossians 1.16, All things are created through him and for him. Talking about Jesus. Okay, so God has created for his glory. God redeemed Israel. And you can go back and look at these verses that I have given you. Psalm 106.8 in Ezekiel 20.14. God redeemed Israel for his glory, for his namesake. God defeated Pharaoh. And if you look at Exodus 14, um, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I will be glorified. And then he also says that I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will follow you and then I will be glorified and so that all of Egypt and all of Israel may know that I am the Lord. Okay, so God defeated Pharaoh for his glory. God restored Israel in Ezekiel 36. God says, I am going to do this not for anything else, but for my name's sake. I am going to restore Israel. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to pour out my spirit for my name's sake, not for anything else. And Ezekiel chapter 36, it's so clear where he says, I'm doing this for my name's sake, so that my name will not be profaned. Okay, so he does that for his name's sake. Uh, Jesus, when he was on the earth, everything that he did was to glorify God. In John 7, 18, he says, I, do, I seek God's glory alone, not the glory of man, but I seek God's glory. Uh, Jesus' death in John 17, 1, he says, Father, the hour has now come. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. John 17, what's he talking about? The hour has come. It's just before he goes to the cross, right? And he says that the hour has come. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. So Jesus' death was also for God's glory. God forgives sins for his glory. God saves us and he adopts us to be his children, Ephesians 1, 6 for his glory. God answers our prayers for his glory. God has done all things according to the counsel of his will for his glory. Psalm 23, I think most of us know Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And two verses later, he says, he leads me beside still waters for his name's sake. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Not for our comfort, not for our um, good. Yes, all things work together for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose. But God is primarily glorifying himself in the salvation of people, in providence, in the common grace that he gives us, in the prayers that he answers, in the way he restores us, in the way he builds us up, in everything he is seeking or he is doing all things for his glory. Okay, John. Do you have a working definition of what glory is and what it means to glorify? Okay, working definition of what glory is and what it means to glorify. So I did not, I don't have this memorized or I don't have it in my notes here, but John Piper came up with a working definition of what God's glory is, and I can include that in the, uh, when I send out the resources. But when you look at Isaiah 6, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The earth is full of God's glory. 
Okay, so the holiness of God radiated is one way you can interpret God's glory. But again, I will need to give you a formal definition. I don't have it right now, but that's something that we can um, talk about God's glory. But it's just God's attributes being displayed in creation, right? God's attributes, again, if you look at Romans 9, his justice and his mercy being displayed, in that he is glorified, in his providence. All of God's attributes, when they are displayed, that's where the glory of God dwells, or the glory of God is revealed, okay? And if you talk about just glorify in, as a verb, you are exalting, you're magnifying, you're um, placing God above everything else. You're doing all things for his glory, which we will talk about in the next slide, but it's to praise him, to magnify him, to exalt him above everything else. All right, let's move on. Um, uh, nice segue, John. Uh, we are called to glorify God uh, in everything we do. We are called to glorify God in everything that we do. And this was what the reformers were also fighting for. They wanted to see God's glory in everything, right? In salvation, in worship, in church life, in everyday living. They wanted to see God's glory, and that is what they fought for. Again, as we said in the very first class, it's not that the reformers were coined these terms, but they were just arguing and they were contending for these principles. And one of these was the glory of God. Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, the very first question um, asks, what is the chief end of man? Okay, uh, the Westminster Catechism was something that came after the Reformation. It was an outcome of the Reformation. And uh, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know what is the chief end of man? Matt? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yes, Matt knows his catechism. Yes, Matt, uh, the catechism answers that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And these verses are from the catechism for how we are called to glorify God. Okay, and you can go back and look at these verses. Um, God's, sorry, man's chief end, the reason God created, I think we looked at that in the previous slide, uh, the reason God created anything and everything, and including us, is for his glory. Remember uh, Genesis 1, where God breathes his spirit into, uh, into, the, into man, and he says, the, the uh, author says that, God made man in his own image and likeness. Okay, that is representation, which is what we discussed when we spoke about the covenants. It's representation, and man was supposed to represent God in creation. Okay, he was rep to represent God's glory in creation. In Psalm 8, you can see the same thing, right? Um, how God, was, God created man for his glory so that man can be God's representative in creation on the earth and have dominion just as God is sovereign over everything else. Okay, so God created man for his glory, and that is what the Shorter Catechism says, that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Um, so how do we glorify God? In everything that we do, in our works, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, uh, let people see your good works and give glory to God. 
we do our works not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. Everything that we do is to glorify God. In our service, this is something that um, we sometimes get bogged down by our service. It's like, oh, here I am, I'm helping the church or I'm helping somebody else and I'm doing all these things. But we need to think about all of these things that we are doing also is for God's glory. Does anybody have First Peter 4, 11? If you have it, can you um, please open it up and we'll read from First Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. Mike. Uh, if anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him the glory and the power forever. Amen. Amen. So if anyone speaks, if anyone serves, if anyone does anything, let him do those things for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So in our service, we glorify God. So in every way that we serve in a church or uh, elsewhere in other ministries, we're doing that to glorify God, not for the glory of the ministry, not for the glory of the church, not for the glory of ourselves, but for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And again, in First um, Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Uh, Spurgeon had a quick, um, I don't know, it was, I don't know how to classify it, but somebody came and was like, I have these cigarettes, uh, sorry, cigars, um, and he brought it to Spurgeon, he's like, I don't know what to do, and he's like, if you don't want it, I'll take it, and he was like, what are you going to do with the cigars? I'm going to smoke them for the glory of God. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, we do everything, and I don't think Spurgeon was being um, smart about it, but he was, um, being serious on one hand, that he wanted to do everything for the glory of God, okay? Everything that we do is for the glory of God. And Paul, again, in the same uh, chapter also, it says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So the first thing that we do is, is it lawful? Is it lawful? If it's not lawful, it's definitely not gonna bring glory to God, right? Second thing, if it is lawful, then is it profitable? And that is, dependent on each person as to what profitable for each person is. So, but we do all things for the glory of God, okay? Um, God alone is to be glorified. And this is where the Reformation had a huge problem. God alone is to be glorified. Um, God says in Isaiah 48, 9 to 11, does someone have Isaiah 48? We'll read just that one. Isaiah chapter 48. I will delay my anger for the honor of my name, and I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise, so that you will not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I will act for my own sake, indeed for my own. For how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. Thanks, George. So even in that verse, you can see how many times God is saying, I'm going to do it for my name's sake, for the honor of my name. Indeed, I'm do it for the honor of my name. And then finally, he says, I will not share my glory with anyone. Okay, God does not share his glory with anyone. And 
That is why we are also called to glorify Him alone, and no one else should be exalted. Again, you can look at Romans 1, 22-23, where Paul says that they exchanged the glory of God for the created things. They exchanged the glory of the Creator for the things that were created, and then God handed them over to their desires, to their um, to sin, and um, that is what happens when we exchange God's glory for the things that He has created or for anything else. Okay, God hands us over to our desires, and that is judgment from Him, where there will be more and more depravity following after that. So, we need to glorify God alone and not exchange His glory for anything else. Again, we're not supposed to bask in our own glory. Um, in Acts 12, 23, you can see Herod standing and he's speaking and the people are like, this is the voice of a God and Herod was enjoying it and immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he failed to glorify God. Okay, so I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that things will be that dramatic. Maybe they will in God's sovereignty. I don't know, but the fact is that we are to glory to glorify God and not bask in our own glory. Everything that we do, everything, be it um, whatever it is, be it in our church life or be it in uh, anywhere else, we live in before God's face, before His glory, and it's there is no separation between our church life and our secular life. Everything that we do is for God's glory. Whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. And again, when we worship, we should not worship lightly, right? We are coming before the glory of God. Hebrews 12, 18 20, uh, to 24, talks about how, uh, recalls the incident at um, uh, Mount Sinai when the, Egypt, when the Israelites are at the foot and God says, do not come anywhere close or um, you will be uh, burned or you will be consumed. And uh, says says, even an animal that comes close should be stoned. So God is uh, commanding them. And then at the end of it, the people are like, we, this is too much. We cannot hear God's voice. It was such a loud thunder, such a loud roar. And they're like, no, let God speak to you and you speak to us. We cannot bear God's uh, glory here. And um, so that is what happened. And the author is saying that we have a much more, a better covenant now in the new covenant. And when we approach, we are approaching God's uh, throne in Jesus Christ, which is a much better covenant. So how much more should we be um, concerned about God's glory when we come to worship? Uh, R.C. Sproul has uh, many sermons about this passage, and you can, uh, maybe I'll include that in the link list of resources. But when we come to worship, we're not worshiping for ourselves. We're not singing so that we might feel better. We're not singing so that we might get that moral boost for the week. Right? That's not why we come to worship. We come to worship because God is worthy of worship, and we come to worship Him, to glorify Him, and to um, exalt Him above everything. Okay, that is the reason why we come, and when we come to worship, we should not worship lightly, but we should glorify Him with all that we have. Okay? Um, one way or another, towards the end, God will be glorified. That is where everything is leading towards. 
to the glory of God. Uh, Habakkuk 2.14, it says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. There will be a day when the earth, the entire earth, will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God. Okay, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and they will do that for the glory of God. And again, in the new heavens and in the new earth, the glory of God will be our light. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23. There will be no sun, there will be no moon, but the glory of God will be our light. So God's name will be glorified. As I said, that is what he has been working um, about throughout history from creation till the new creation. It, God is about his glory. Okay, he is glorifying himself. And it's perfectly um, just for him to glorify himself because there's no one else above him, right? If he were to glorify someone else, then as one of the theologians said, God would be engaging in idolatry. Yeah, so um, there is no one else higher than God and no one else can be glorified above God and God is glorifying himself in all things that he does. And eventually we will see the glory of God. So this is where I want to stop with the glory of God. Any comments, any questions? Um, and after this, we will wrap up the entire series. The, uh, what was the order and how did the order of this presentation happen, starting with scripture and so forth? So, so we started with scripture alone and we went to grace alone and then to faith alone and then Christ alone and then glory of God alone. That was the order. Um, it was, th there is no order to the five solas. Again, the five solas were not uh, exactly the slogans that the reformers used. Those are the teachings, and based on the teachings, these have been coined as a summation of reformed, uh, or the teachings from the Reformation, what the Reformation was all about. Um, different people have different orders. Uh, some start with grace, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Um, some start with scripture and different things. Okay? But the main thing is what was, the, what was the primary motivation and what were the reformers, what was the reformation all about? And we'll look at that in the next slide. Um, I didn't want to share this slide, but I'm going to share it um, because I don't know, it might lead to some confusion, but I'm going to try. Uh, don't get confused, but um, let's see how this goes. But don't get confused. I think there is possibility that it, there will be confusion. So if you want to look at the five solas, you can look at it as a Parthenon, right? And at the bottom, we have Scripture alone, which is our foundation. Again, this is where I don't want you to get confused. Christ is the rock on which the church is built on, right? So we're not saying that Scripture is the rock. But when it comes to the solas, when it comes to the teachings of the solas, Scripture is our authority. We stand on Scripture. There is no other authority, and we have nothing that is revealed by God outside of Scripture for us to really say that this is what God says. So everything that we proclaim is from Scripture. And then we proclaim the three truths that we are saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. 
Okay, so we're not saved by our works. We're not saved. We don't have another mediator or a mediatrix. We don't have anyone else. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And all of this is for the glory of God. And what, we, what is displayed, what is proclaimed in all of this is that God needs to get all the glory. God is the one who initiates salvation, who perfects it, and who accomplishes it and um, applies it to people. So God is the author and the finisher of our faith, Philippians 1 verse 6. Okay, so he gets the glory in everything and no one else. So all of this is for the glory of God. Again, don't get confused with being scripture at the bottom. I mean, Jesus is our uh, rock, and uh, for the sake of the solas, I put it in this fashion. I got it from somebody, but yeah. Okay, let's move on. Um, is, the next slide that you see is um, Semper Reformanda. What does Semper Reformanda mean? Anybody from Marines? Always, always reforming. Semper Fi, right, Marine? But yes, you have... Always faithful, Semper Fi, yes. So Semper is always, and when you say Semper Reformanda, always reforming. So the gospel was at stake during the Reformation, and it is still at stake today. You can, in the conversations that you've had with many people who are non-Christian, the gospel is not understood, and even if it's understood, it's understood incorrectly, and there are so many things that are added on to the gospel, right? People, uh, the most common thing that you hear, I'm a good person. What are they depending on? They're depending on their own works. They're not depending on Christ. They're not depending on grace. They're not depending on faith, and they're not depending on scripture, and obviously they're not glorifying God with that. So they're depending on their own works and their own selves and their own righteousness to say, yeah, God should um, let me in into his presence because I'm a good person. That is still the issue. It's not just when it comes to Catholicism or other things, but the gospel is always going to be at stake. And that is what the reformers fought for, to reclaim the essence of the gospel, that it is God who saves and it is through Christ alone. And we receive it through faith alone, and God gives it to us according to His grace alone, right? So there's nothing that we can do to earn it, and we trust in the finished work of Christ, which we spoke about last week, okay? So that is at stake, and it is still at st stake, so we need to keep reforming, we need to keep proclaiming these truths. When we go and evangelize, when we talk to our friends, we have to say that, no, salvation is found in Christ alone, uh, as Peter said in Acts chapter 4. Um, sufficiency of scripture is still in question. We spoke about how there are a lot of people today who uh, claim to have, um, who don't trust in the sufficiency of scripture, right? They have other sources that they add on to, just like the Catholic Church does with tradition. They have different sources. When you look at the Mormons, they have the Book of Mormon, and so many different things that go on. Even in Christianity, and even among many evangelicals, uh, you have um, people who are called new apostles, and they get revelation, and their word is now apostolic. No, we have to stand on scripture, and we have to stand on the sufficiency of scripture, and that is still a battle for us today, and we have to uh, keep reforming 
in that. Um, worship still needs reforming. Um, if you have uh, been to many other churches, the new trend is your smoke screen and your um, all the other things. And one of the things that um, comes to my mind um, is we are um, we are to feed the sheep, not amuse the goats. That's what Spurgeon said. And our worship many times today is to in in most of the churches is to amuse the goats. And no, our worship is for God and we have to reform worship and we have to fight for God's glory in worship. Uh, theology matters and this is something that we did not uh, touch on but Luther when he was uh, in one of in many of his works he contrasted the theology of glory with the theology of the cross and again we didn't touch on this at all but the theology of the cross he says we know everything because of the cross. We see everything through the cross. We see God's love, God's justice, God's grace, God, and our faith. Everything we see through the cross. Um, and there is, um, again, I'll include that in the list, but there is Luther contrasted theology of glory versus theology of cross. And even today, theology matters. Salvation is about theology. And how are we saved? That is theological. And that matters because the gospel matters. And finally, um, ecclesiology matters. One of the things that we spoke about in the very first class is Luther, Luther didn't want to start a movement, a revolution. He wanted to have a debate. He wanted to reform the church. He wanted to be like, let's talk about this. Let's see what the scripture says and let's reform our ch the church and let's make sure that we are going back to what the scriptures say. And today, even after 500 years of reformation, what is a church is still in question. The Reformation is not um, completed with the Protestant movement, but even among Protestants, there's still so much question of what is church? What does ecclesiology mean? And ecclesiology matters, so the Reformation, we have to keep reforming. Um, um, Ryan, I don't have time. I'll come to you later. Uh, I have probably I'm over by two minutes. Um, all right, so the Reformation is not over, right? Just because the Reformation was over in the 1500s. It doesn't mean that we don't worry about the Reformation or the truths about the Reformation. The Reformation is still going on. We continue to reform. We continue to go back to the scriptures and we continue to do all things for God's glory according to his revelation. And uh, yes, the Reformation is not over, but this class is over. And let's pray and uh, we'll close. And Ryan, you can come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, Father, we praise you. We give you glory, Lord, for how, how you have acted in history. We thank you, Lord, for uh, raising up people to, to contend for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for the Reformation. We thank you that the truth of the gospel was reclaimed. And we thank you, Lord, that through that you have made yourself known and you have called us to be yours, um, called us to have the right understanding of the gospel. And Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you, Lord, that you alone are the one who deserves all glory for our salvation. Lord, we did not do anything to deserve this, but Lord, you, um, by your grace, uh, made us alive in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for this and we praise you. And Lord, we pray that we will do all things for your glory and that we will proclaim these truths all for your glory and that we will see many people um, believe in you, Lord. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.